York. This is Democracy Now! This incident between a U.S. Reaper drone and a Russian fighter jet uh, is a public manifestation of a secret that is barely concealed, and that is that the U.S. and NATO are engaged in a proxy war with Russia that could very quickly uh, snowball into a full-blown hot war with nuclear consequences. And when you set this against the backdrop of the very serious question of who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, you understand how high the stakes are right now for the world. A U.S. surveillance drone crashes Tuesday into the Black Sea, about 75 miles off the coast of Crimea. The U.S. has accused Russian warplanes of intercepting and damaging the drone, but Russia says the United States provoked the incident. We'll speak to investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill about the drone crash, the war in Ukraine, the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines, and more. Then we look at the fight to protect reproductive rights here in the United States as a Trump-appointed judge in Texas is deciding whether to ban the abortion pill methapristone across the United States. We're talking about a judge in Texas who any day now could upend access to a pill that's part of the most popular method of abortion nationwide, impacting patients in states from California to New York. If nothing else, this case should put to rest any claims by the anti-abortion movement that this was ever about states' rights. It's always been about banning abortion nationwide through whatever means possible. And as news of Americans kidnapped and killed in Mexico makes headlines, we look at a story that's received far less attention, the tens of thousands of Mexicans who remain missing in Mexico. And we'll look at the latest on the Ayotzinapa 43. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian fighter jets intercepted a U.S. drone over the Black Sea Tuesday, leading the operators of the MQ-9 Reaper drone to bring it down in international waters. The U.S. military says it downed the drone after its propeller was struck by a Russian jet. Russia denies making contact with the drone, which it said was gathering intelligence to help Ukraine attack Russia, and said it had entered a prohibited area near Crimea. If a collision is confirmed, it would be the first known contact between the U.S. and Russian military since the start of the Ukraine war. We'll have more on the implications of this, as well as the latest reports on the Nord Stream pipeline blow-up, after headlines with The Intercept's Jeremy Scahill. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill to repeal the Trump-era rollback of the Dodd-Frank Act following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The bill brings the threshold for banks that must undergo extra federal regulations back down to at least $50 billion in assets. The limit was raised to $250 billion in 2018, after lobbying by the banking industry, including SVB, which held around $209 billion in assets. This is Senator Warren speaking Tuesday. The federal government, once again, was called on to take extraordinary measures, the kind of measures that Dodd-Frank was originally supposed to protect us against. These threats should never have been allowed to materialize. And now we must prevent them from occurring again. California Congressmember and Senator hopeful Katie Porter unveiled a similar bill in the House. This comes as reports emerged the Justice Department and Securities and Exchange Commission opened investigations into the collapse of SVB. 
The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed new rules to force water companies to remove what's known as forever chemicals, or PFAS, from drinking water. The man-made chemicals, which have been linked to cancer, infertility, thyroid problems, have also been detected in many common household products, including cosmetics and food packaging. Environmental groups welcome the move, but push for stronger regulations against the all-around use of PFAS and to force chemical companies to pay for their pollution. President Biden issued an executive order offering modest improvements on gun control, including increasing background checks. Biden announced the new measures Tuesday while visiting California's Monterey Park, where a gunman killed 11 people in January at a dance studio during Lunar New Year celebrations. My executive order directs my attorney general to take every lawful action possible, possible to move us as close as we can to universal background checks without new legislation. I just—it's just common sense to check whether someone is a felon, a domestic abuser, before they buy a gun. The executive order also expands public awareness campaigns about the red flag orders. Biden also called again on Congress to mass pass more robust gun control legislation, including an assault weapons ban. A Pakistan court has ordered police to halt its arrest operation against former Prime Minister Imran Khan until Thursday morning. It was the second attempt to arrest him this month. On Tuesday, hundreds of Khan supporters gathered outside his residence in Lahore, blocking security forces. Riot police fired water cannon and tear gas to disperse protesters in an hours-long standoff that ended earlier today after authorities finally withdrew from outside Khan's home. Imran Khan is accused of corruption and terrorism, charges he's denied and denounced as politically motivated. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Ethiopian leaders today in Addis Ababa, including Tigrayan officials, four months after a peace deal was reached last November following two years of brutal war. Blinken will then travel to Niger Thursday in the first visit to the West African nation by a sitting U.S. Secretary of State. In southeastern Africa, the death toll from Cyclone Freddie more than doubled in one day, jumping to 220 Tuesday across Malawi, Mozambique and Madagascar, with hundreds more injured and scores missing. Cyclone Freddie is the longest-lasting tropical cyclone on record. Survivors in Malawi, which suffered the highest death toll, described harrowing scenes and heroic rescues. The child was stuck up to her head in the mud. She was crying for help. Even though the water was very strong, we managed to cross and rescue her. It was very difficult, but we managed to pull her out. Back in the United States, Novo Nordisk announced it's lowering the cost of insulin by up to 70 percent. This follows a similar move by drug competitor Eli Lilly earlier this month and comes after years of pressure from activist lawmakers and people with diabetes. It also puts pressure on Sanofi, the other major insulin manufacturer in the United States to follow suit. Last week, Congressmember Cory Bush and Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the Insulin for All Act to cap insulin prices at $20 per vial. In Massachusetts, students at Wellesley College have approved a non-binding referendum calling for the school to accept admissions applications from non-binary and transgender students. Currently, the college only admits students who identify as women. The referendum also asks that the college's communications use gender-neutral language and pronouns. The proposals still have to be approved by the college's board of trustees. 
Ohio is suing Norfolk Southern over last month's train derailment, which spewed toxic chemicals over the town of East Palestine. The 58-count lawsuit refers to multiple violations of state and federal law, Ohio seeking damages, civil penalties, and a, quote, declaratory judgment that Norfolk Southern is responsible. This is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. Among the things we note in the complaint are Norfolk and Southern's uh, escalating accident rate. It's up 80 percent over 10 years. And uh, that's a concerning number. At least 20 Norfolk and Southern derailments since 2015 have included chemical spills. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is laying off another 10,000 workers and imposing a hiring freeze on another 5,000 open positions. This comes less than six months after the social media giant cut 11,000 jobs last November. Another wave of layoffs and restructuring at Meta are also expected in April. In a victory for Uber and Lyft, a California court has upheld Proposition 22, allowing the companies to keep classifying ride hail and delivery drivers as independent contractors rather than as employees, depriving them of basic wage and labor protections. David Huerta, president of SEIU California, said in a statement, quote, when gig companies can spend over $200 million to pass a law that violates our state's constitution instead of investing in workers, it's clear California needs better safeguards for our democracy, he said. The ruling's expected to be appealed at the California Supreme Court. Illinois has become the third U.S. state to enact a law requiring employers to provide up to 40 hours of paid time off a year for workers to use for any reason. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the law Monday, joining Maine and Nevada. It goes into effect January 2024. And pioneering former Congress member and feminist Patricia Schroeder has died at the age of 82. She was elected as the first woman to represent Colorado in the U.S. House in 1973 and served for nearly a quarter decade. She championed women and workers' rights access to health care and environmental protection. She led the fight to pass the 1993 Family and Medical Leave Act, which guarantees workers up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. As the first woman on the Armed Services Committee, Schroeder called for arms control and reduced military spending. She faced unrelenting misogyny throughout her career, but used her public platform to call it out and encourage other women to run for office. This is Pat Schroeder speaking on the House floor in 1992 in favor of the passage of the Freedom of Choice Act, which would have cut Roe v. Wade. Especially as we are looking more and more towards national health care, we cannot have a national health care that does not recognize women equally. Otherwise, we'll be forcing all women into secondary class citizens. And I certainly hope that the right to choose bill gets a majority of this body, we pass it out of here, and we say to America's women, indeed, they are going to be treated equally. That was former Colorado Congress member Pat Schroeder. She died Monday at the age of 82. She served in Congress for more than quarter of a century. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill joins us on U.S.-Russian relations after a U.S. surveillance drone crashed Tuesday in the Black Sea, about 75 miles off the coast of Crimea, after being intercepted by Russian planes. We'll talk about the drone, the Ukraine war, the Nord Stream explosion, and more. Stay with us. Whoa. 
in F major by Kiev Chamber Choir. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at increasing tensions between the United States and Russia. On Tuesday, a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone crashed into the Black Sea, about 75 miles off the coast of Crimea. The Biden administration says two Russian fighter jets intercepted the drone, and then one of the jets clipped the drone's propeller, forcing the U.S. to down the the damaged drone. Russia admitted its jets intercepted the drone, but said there was no direct contact contact, and that the drone crashed on its own after making a sharp turn. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder spoke at a news conference Tuesday. What we saw, again, were fighter aircraft dumping fuel in front of this uh, UAV uh, and then getting so close to the aircraft that it actually damaged the propeller on the MQ-9. Uh, we, we assess that it likely caused some damage to the Russian aircraft as well. Um, to our knowledge, well, we know that the aircraft, uh, the Russian aircraft did land. I'm not going to go into where they landed. Um, but again, it's just demonstrative of uh, very unprofessional, unsafe airmanship on the part of these pilots. Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, accused the United States of attempting to provoke Russia by flying a drone with its transponder turned off near a military zone. The aircraft was flying with its transponders turned off. It had entered the area where it had been determined that the special military operation would take place. We, Russia, warned everybody about this using international communications channels. I think it was a real provocation. They were provoking us to take certain actions after which they could accuse the Russian military of some sort of lack of professionalism. Ambassador Antonov was called to the State Department when he came out. He said, what would the United States do if there was a Russian drone outside of San Francisco, off the coast? To talk about the drone incident and much more, we're joined by Jeremy Scahill, senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept. His latest piece headlined, Conflicting Reports Thicken Nord Stream Bombing Plot. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, Jeremy, if you can talk about the latest on the drone and the significance of it going down um, in the Black Sea, uh, the U.S. says it hasn't been able to to, uh, retrieve it in any way yet, though it is able to zero out all that it possibly has been surveilling inside uh, automatically. Well, you know, I, I think this is a, an indication of, of the, the real risks at play uh, in this proxy war. I mean, the U.S. tries to deny uh, that it's engaged in a proxy war, um, and yet we know for a fact that uh, Moscow is correct in its assessment that it's not just fighting uh, the armed forces of Ukraine and uh, militias that are fighting on the side of Ukraine, but actually uh, against uh, the weapons infrastructure of NATO countries. And what I think is relevant about uh, this particular incident 
is that the United States, and this doesn't get much attention, but the United States in particular has been providing Ukraine with actionable intelligence from satellite imagery, from drone imagery that Ukraine is using to strike at Russian forces. Uh, and so from Russia's perspective, uh, this is a provocation on the part of the United States. It's not simply um, as the Pentagon portrays it. You know, the, the U.S. was innocently flying, uh, you know, its Reaper drone uh, over the area to just sort of look at topography. I mean, th this is a, uh, a a vehicle of war, uh, and it doesn't have to have missiles on it to be part of a of a system that makes the U.S. a combatant in this war. So, from Russia's perspective, you can understand why they would have scrambled and why they would consider this a kind of hostile act. Now, that, that's not defending you know, Russia going and dumping fuel and, and trying to uh, force uh, the, the, the drone to the ground. But, but it's important sometimes to understand uh, what motivates other actors on the other side of the barrel of the U.S. gun, or in this case, the cameras of a, of a U.S. drone. But I think it dramatizes um, just how close we uh, are coming uh, to the potential for an overt conflict with the United States. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, soon after this took place, went on Fox News uh, and suggested that the United States should uh, be starting to shoot down Russian aircraft and that the Biden administration should threaten Russia, that if any incident like this happens again, that the U.S. is going to begin shooting down Russian planes. So it's a it's an incendiary uh, development. And I think it portends real dangers uh, at play as the United States um, continues this proxy war. And Jeremy, about this drone, uh, it seems to me, first of all, that uh, clearly we've heard that often that this this war in Ukraine is one of the first where drones have played such an enormous role uh, in terms of uh, not 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 just of surveillance, but of actually being involved uh, in in uh, attacks. Uh, and of course, the reality is that if it's an American drone. Uh, the the Russians would have to figure out well who's actually operating it is it is it uh, is it Ukraine uh, is it the Ukrainian military or is it uh, the U S could you talk about drone warfare in this particular conflict yeah and in fact one um, you know Ukraine does have some upper tier level drones but the United States to date has not that we know of has not transferred one of its top tier drones, although there are there is an increasing number of U.S. senators and other lawmakers. And certainly the drone and defense war industry in the United States has been pressuring the White House uh, to sell Ukraine Gray Eagle drones, which have a very long range, can um, carry a very heavy weapons payload, uh, have the potential to strike deep within Russia. But uh, the most powerful drones that Ukraine has right now are Turkish uh, manufactured drones. And in fact, uh, Russia itself um, really has not kept up or kept pace with the United States and China, for example, in terms of developing advanced technology drones. And that's part of why you've seen Russia using what are called swarm attacks, where they're purchasing much smaller kamikaze drones that are single-use drones that carry explosives. And essentially, it's like a, a higher-end remote-controlled missile. And what Russia has been using as a tactic is to send a bunch of these at the same time to strike at targets. Ukraine has also uh, been doing this. And the United States um, has authorized a number of private contracts from American corporations 
to sell Ukraine single-use explosive uh, suicide drones. Um, and in fact, they've been escalating uh, the supply chain to get more and more of these to Ukraine. But Juan, I think you know the question is a very good one. And, and we have to remember, the United States set this trend in motion uh, that, that using weaponized, remotely piloted aircraft um, is, is now a standard part of, of warfare. And in fact, a couple of months ago, China unveiled a drone that is on par with many uh, of the upper tier uh, U.S. drones. And it's a matter of time before Russia does have some much more powerful drones that have not been used widely yet in Ukraine. Um, that could well happen. But to, to me, what, what we're seeing here is, is Russia starting to confront uh, what we know to be true and what Russia also has been alleging, and that is that the United States is not simply uh, providing you know, its ally, although non-NATO ally, Ukraine with a lot of weaponry, um, but is also actively providing Ukraine with intelligence that is allowing it to attack Russian forces. And, and that, I think that's what we're seeing, that Russia is starting to say, okay, we're, we're fed up with this and we're going to start escalating from our end. It's, it's very, very dangerous. And just, just one point I want to make, though. Regardless of anything we talk about today, there's one person who could end this tomorrow, and that's Vladimir Putin. And so I, I think it's, it is important uh, to state that uh, this is a war of aggression filled with war crimes. Vladimir Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. None of that justifies U.S. politicking or, or the U.S. position. Um, but Vladimir Putin should uh, really squarely be held responsible for starting this bloodbath that's now extended beyond a year in Ukraine. I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, Nord Stream uh, pipeline. You recently wrote a piece uh, in The Intercept uh, 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 dissecting and uh, analyzing the Cy Hirsch uh, re, uh, explosive uh, report. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, first of all, I, I think it should be said that, um, you know, Seymour Hirsch is is one of the greatest generations, uh, one of the greatest journalists um, in American history uh, with a very, very long track record of of breaking stories of great consequence on uh, American war crimes, American covert operations. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, that that often gets lost in the shuffle in people's uh, confirmation bias inspired attacks on Cy Hirsch's stories. Um, you could argue for sure uh, that a single source story uh, that appears to have a bunch of details in it that are contradicted by uh, open source intelligence on ship movements and plane movements. Um, they're all legitimate uh, questions to raise. And I, I don't pretend to uh, know the answer of what happened to the Nord Stream pipeline. And I also have my own questions about uh, some of the, the, the citations in size reporting. Um, but here's what I will say with, with confidence. I, I know that if Seymour Hirsch uh, has a source that he believes has credible access to intelligence and he reports it uh, and reports those assertions, uh, that there is a there there, that it is worth pursuing, it is worth looking at. So uh, what I tried to do in my story was give some context to what it's like to work with confidential sources. And uh, one thing that we know is that very few people in government have access to every detail uh, of a covert operation or every detail of a secret program. And sometimes what happens is that sources know what they know and they share that, but they mix it uh, with speculation, or they mix it with uh, things that were being discussed as a potential plan. 
I think it's plausible that uh, Hirsch may have some of the details wrong, uh, not because Cy Hirsch himself is sloppy, but because uh, sources um, sometimes don't delineate what they know to be true from what is speculation. Um, it's also possible that this was one of the plans that was being discussed uh, within the Biden administration as part of a secret task force, and that they ended up operating uh, the, the plan in a different manner. Um, there's there's a number of questions that I think we should be asking, but what I think is the, the central, most important assertion is that Cy Hirsch uh, has a source that he believes is legitimate and real and has information uh, that is true, who is asserting that the United States uh, uh, carried out this operation or sponsored this operation. And I think that uh, the dismissal of Cy Hirsch by so many people is reckless. It also shows a total disregard for the history of American covert operations. And it ultimately seeks to uh, silence people who are questioning uh, what I think is quite clearly uh, the top suspect in this uh, international act of terrorism, and that uh, is the party that would have the greatest motivation to conduct this attack, and that would be the United States. Uh, I wanted to go to what Russian President Vladimir Putin said, the bombing of the Nord Stream carried out at the, quote, state level. He didn't directly blame the United States, but pointed out the U.S. had an interest in the pipelines being blown up. Who is interested? Theoretically, the United States is interested, of course, in order to stop the supply of Russian energy carriers to the European market and supply volumes of their own, including liquefied natural gas. So that's Vladimir Putin, Jeremy. If you could, for people who aren't following this closely, summarize what the major news outlets are uh, saying, whether we're talking about uh, Die Zeit in Germany, um, uh, pro-Ukrainian group, Russia, whether we're talking about The New York Times or Cy Hirsch, what each is contending. Yeah. Well, so, of course— Seymour Hirsch uh, says that this was a United States operation uh, that was covert in nature, although it, uh, uh, according to Hirsch, once Joe Biden in February, uh, on February 7th, 2022, Joe Biden has a meeting in the East Room of the White House, a press conference uh, with the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. And uh, during that press conference, Biden is asked about the Nord Stream pipeline and he says, uh, you know, we will shut it down. We will get it done. We will end it. I promise you that. Um, and what Hirsch is saying is that once Biden said that, that the operation that was intended to be a covert operation under Title 50 of the U.S. Code, which which means that if the president issues a secret presidential finding that the U.S., for interests of its national security, has to conduct an operation and keep it secret, that under the law, the president of the United States is required to inform the Senate uh, and House Intelligence Committees, or at a minimum, the so-called uh, Gang of Eight, which would be the chairs of the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, and then the leadership of uh, in both the Senate and, and the House. Um, and what Hirsch is saying is that once Biden let the cat out of the bag by sort of saying, you know, we're going to we're going to do this. Biden, of course, didn't say we're going to go blow up the pipeline. But he you know, you, you could read into it very easily that Biden was saying one way or the other, we're taking these, this thing out. 
um, that then the CIA and others said, well, this can't be a covert operation in that manner. So they shifted it to uh, a military operation that would fall under a Title 10 of the U.S. Code. And in that case, um, you do not have the same congressional reporting requirements to the intelligence committees. So according to Hirsch, they were able to circumvent uh, informing Congress uh, because of this distinction. Now, I talked to lawyers, including the top lawyer for the director of national intelligence under uh, Barack Obama, Robert Litt, who was saying that even with those semantics, that this kind of an operation would fall clearly under covert action statutes and, and was questioning uh, the veracity of that claim that no one from Congress would have been informed. But all of that aside, and I think it's just important to understand the, the distinctions for how covert ap actions are authorized. And by the way, Joe Biden, as a young senator, played a role in establishing these rules that now govern covert operations and in setting up the Intelligence Committee. He was a founding member of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee in the 1970s. Um, so what Hirsch is alleging is that this was a secret operation with the support uh, of the Norwegian government and that it was done under cover of a NATO, a well-publicized NATO training operation and involved deep sea divers who were part of the vanilla U.S. Navy, not Special Operations Command, because then again, it would have had to be reported uh, to members of Congress and, and that they then placed the explosives on portions of the pipeline that they had identified as uh, as a particularly good place to uh, to disrupt it and sabotage it. And then they detonated it. Um, that was immediately attacked by a lot of commentators online, a lot of other journalists, but interestingly, was never, and still to this moment, has never gotten a fair hearing uh, in the New York Times or the Washington Post. In fact, uh, last week when the New York Times uh, published a story uh, that you know reverberated around the world, uh, asserting that U.S. intelligence believes that, or, or is zeroing in on what they called a pro-Ukrainian group, uh, that may have been involved with attacking or sabotaging the Nord Stream pipeline. They, for the first time, mentioned Seymour Hersh's report, uh, and it was in the 23rd graph of their story. And they didn't even um, make any assertion of what Sai actually said. Uh, they, they, were, they were mentioning it as though Sai had just done a blog post referencing Joe Biden's, uh, you know, perceived public threat. And, and I think what was what was clear uh, to me as, as a follower of both The New York Times and U.S. covert action is that there are elements within the U.S. intelligence committee community who are spinning this story uh, and, and, and they're doing it for one of two reasons, either to distract from Hirsch's report. Um, or uh, because th this is representative of some sort of a deception operation uh, or uh, or an attempt to uh, put together a false flag where you have the appearance that these individuals did it and that is intended to mask the actual sponsor uh, of the operation. And at the same time that The New York Times does its story, the uh, a consortium of uh, German journalists from different publications, including Die Zeit, uh, published a story that was not based on intelligence reporting, but was based on the federal criminal investigation that Germany is doing into the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. And they then uh, offered more details from the German investigation that there was a private boat uh, that had been rented uh, by a, from a Ukrainian-owned company um, and that explosives had been transported by land over Poland and through Germany and placed onto this what essentially was just a kind of sailboat uh, with a you know, 75 horsepower motor and that this, uh, this boat 
carried six individuals, some divers and a doctor, um, and that they went out into the sea and that they were uh, uh, the ones that actually placed the explosives on it. Now, what's interesting, Amy, and you asked Cy Hirsch about this on his show, about some of the open source intelligence researchers who called into question parts of his story. Some of those same people then started to go to town in dissecting the inconsistencies of the reporting from Die Zeit and the, the, the findings as they were relayed in the papers in Germany uh, from the German federal police uh, about how such a small team of divers would have been able to do this, how they would have transported the volume of explosives. We're, you know, we're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of explosives that have been that were alleged to have been used in this operation, a military level of explosive devices. So um, I don't know that this uh, Andromeda, this ship um, was or wasn't involved with it. But in many ways, it really reeks of a disinformation operation. It's totally plausible that these individuals on that boat were involved in some capacity. Um, but even the German defense minister himself, in response to these reports, has said that he would give equal weight to the theory that they were involved with the attack and that they were or that they were part of a false flag operation. Now, I would say the top suspect in this should just logically be the United States. Many of the same principles that I could offer in analyzing this private boat scenario could also apply to Russia. It's just that the, the case that Russia would have had the motive to do this is much flimsier than the case that the United States would have or that Ukraine would have. What I think is a theory that, you know, and again, this is just speculation on my part, but it's informed speculation, um, is that I wouldn't be shocked if we at some point learn that the United States sponsored this operation uh, using deniable assets uh, for plausible deniability, and that some elements of uh, Ukrainian forces, whether they're private or official, uh, were involved or if not carried out the operation. I think that would be the most logical line of inquiry. I'm not saying I know that to be true. I'm saying if I was running an investigation on this, I would be looking at who benefits uh, and who has the capacity to do such a sophisticated operation. Well, uh, Jeremy, in line with that issue of the sophisticated operation, I don't know if you saw this piece that uh, Scott Ritter, uh, the former UN weapons inspector, uh, uh, wrote in Consortium News yesterday. But he uh, totally debunks this idea that uh, this uh, small boat, as you say, could have, have been involved in this, not only because of the number, the amount of um, explosives necessary uh, to, uh, to destroy those pipelines, which were highly reinforced uh, in concrete as, as well, but he also says that they were at 240 feet uh, below the uh, the level of uh, of the um, of the water, and that he says a rule of thumb is that decompression takes approximately one day per 100 feet of seawater plus a day. This means that the team of divers would have required three days of decompression per dive. But to decompress, you need a decompression chamber. Uh, and if there were two divers involved, uh, they would have to have had two decompression chambers uh, and all the oxygen necessary. And it's impossible to have fit all that stuff on this little boat. So he says that it is clearly, uh, from his perspective, a, uh, a cover story of to hide who really was involved. Uh, wondering your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't even need to cite Scott Ritter on those points. I mean, you, you've had naval warfare experts um, that have called into question almost every single part of that narrative, the, the narrative meaning that the actual divers were on this small ship and went down to place the explosives. I, I mean, if you 
if you speak to people who are um, experts at diving, either on the civilian end or more relevant on the military end, it it's it, it really does not add up. And and so then the question becomes, why is this story being pushed? You know, it's it's interesting. This hasn't gotten much play in the United States, but in in the European in European media. Um, there, there's a lot of reporting uh, uh, indicating that a name is going to come out about the person who, uh, you know, potentially sponsored this component of the operation. And I think that the, you know, the fact that the German defense minister is stating uh, that that it's like 50-50 that this thing was a false flag is a pretty good indication that um, that that dominant narrative that's been pushed that this was sort of the 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 attackers and they used this ship and they did it by themselves. Um, it, it just doesn't pass the, you know, the smell test. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, you don't even need to get into political rhetoric or having any other theory about it just to say the facts just don't make any sense on a technical level that that specific ship uh, could have been, uh, you know, the, the sole party responsible for for blowing this up. Jeremy Scahill, we want to thank you for being with us, senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept, author of Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army, and the book Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield, on which the Oscar-nominated film Dirty Wars is based. We'll link to your new piece, Conflicting Reports Thicken Nord Stream Bombing Plot. Coming up, we look at the fight to protect reproductive rights in the United States as a Trump-appointed judge in Texas is deciding whether to ban the abortion pill used by more than half in more than half the abortions in the United States. Stay with us. I've been down with a broken heart since the day I learned to speak. The devil gave me a crooked store when he gave me crooked feet. But Gabriel Dunn came to me and kissed me in my sleep. And I'll be singing like an angel until I'm six feet deep. I found myself an old man and I tattooed on a sign. I set my mind to wandering and walk a broken line. Raise Hell by Brandy Carlisle. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to the fight to protect reproductive rights in the United States, a decision could come as early as today from a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas on whether to ban the abortion pill, methapristone, nationwide. The hearing is taking place in Amarillo, a four-hour drive from any major city, and only became public after reporters raised alarm about the lack of transparency. After Judge Matthew Kaczmarek tried to delay notice and hide the date, the lawsuit aims to revoke the Food and Drug Administration's two-decade approval of the abortion pill and comes after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion last year, overturning Roe v. Wade. We go right now to Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent at The Nation. Amy, welcome back to Democracy Now! So, first, let's take on this hearing today. Uh, Trump-appointed anti-abortion judge is deciding uh, whether this drug can be used. It's used in more than half the abortions in the United States. So if he decides no, even in states where abortion is totally legal, they will not have access. Is that right? 
That's right, Amy. If the judge succeeds in revoking the FDA's approval of mifepristone, which has been on the market in the United States for 23 years, then it would have a catastrophic impact specifically in states where abortion is legal. I mean, we're talking about this hearing taking place in a state that's not even going to be impacted by it because abortion is already banned in Texas. And so this would reverberate across states like where I'm sitting in Massachusetts, New York, California, states where abortion is legal. The abortion pill mifepristone is the first of two drugs used in the standard of care for medication abortion. And so what providers across the country have been preparing to do in preparation for this ruling is to start providing misoprostol-only abortions, so medication abortion using only the second drug in the protocol. That still works, but it's less effective. It's about 88 percent effective, according to a recent study, versus up to 99 percent when it's used with mifepristone. And it causes more intense suffering, more cramping, more prolonged ble- bleeding, and, and a more um, intensive process for the person going through that, that medication abortion. So we're talking about imposing suffering on medication abortion patients across the country. And as you point out, medication abortion using mifepristone is the the most popular method of abortion used in more than half of abortions nationwide. So this could have a huge impact. Of course, it depends on exactly what the Food and Drug Administration does in response to this ruling. And there's a growing chorus of voices saying that the FDA should simply choose to ignore this ruling um, and that providers should continue to, to offer this drug where they can. So I think it's, it's unclear exactly what the impact will be until we have a decision. But I think this really should put to bed any um, pretense that this was ever about states' rights or about returning abortion to the elected representatives in the states, which is what the Supreme Court claimed that it was doing with the Dobbs Supreme Court decision, right? Um, in fact, what we're seeing is an effort to ban abortion nationwide using what anti-abortion legal strategists hope is a judicial pipeline that's going to allow them to go all the way up to the Supreme Court and have a sympathetic anti-abortion hearing. Uh, and, and Amy, what are the, 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 uh, the, the legal arguments of, of those uh, who are uh, who are who have brought this case, especially given the fact that the FDA uh, has a, a, a green light in the use uh, of the drug for so long. Exactly, Juan. I mean, what what's remarkable about this case, right, is we wouldn't even be talking about it if it weren't for the judge who's involved, because the legal arguments here amount to that the FDA did not follow the protocol that it was supposed to when it approved the drug, when, in fact, mifepristone has been stringently studied. There's there's data from tens of thousands of patients who've taken it that demonstrate that serious complications happen less than a fraction of a percent of the time. And so, um, the, the arguments in this case really add up to we don't like abortion and we don't think it should be available. It's being brought by the right-wing legal organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the legal group that brought you the fall of Roe v. Wade um, on behalf of a bunch of anti-abortion medical organizations. 
The Justice Department, which is defending the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, has called these um, claims in the lawsuit unfounded. They're not new. They're the same arguments they've been making since Mifepristone was first approved. Um, but the reason that we're even talking about this right now is because of Judge Matthew Kaczmarek. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who served on the board of a Christian anti-abortion maternity home where his sister gave birth as a teenager and, and put the baby do- up for adoption. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's railed against everything from homosexuality, which he considers disordered, to um, no-fault divorce laws and um, the decision to get rid of penalties for adultery, which he sees as part of an effort to undermine heterosexual marriage. Um, In a case that could be a harbinger for this one, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek um, in December upheld the right of a father um, who wanted to prevent his teen daughters from seeking contraception at federal clinics in Texas because he said that if his daughters were to access contraception, it would violate his religious beliefs. Um, And in a decision that cited Catholic catechism, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek uh, sided with the father in that case. And so um, I think, you know, he's he founded a chapter of the Federalist Society, the right wing organization that that helped Trump hand handpicked Trump Supreme Court justices. He um, was a staff attorney at First Liberty Institute, which is a Christian right um, law firm. Um, I could go on and on about Judge Matthew well, Kaczmarek's anti-abortion credentials. Can you talk about what he did today, Amy? Um, having this hearing right. and trying to keep it secret. I mean, this is remarkable, Amy. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek on Friday held a call with the attorneys in this case and said, look, we've been getting a lot of phone calls about this. We've even been getting some death threats. I don't want a circus-like atmosphere in my courtroom. And so please don't tell anyone about this hearing that we're scheduling for Wednesday. And he told the attorneys he was not going to put it on the public docket until late on Tuesday. Now, Eleanor Klebanoff, who's been covering this case for the Texas Tribune, said, look, if I had to, if I found out late Tuesday about a hearing that was happening Wednesday morning, she would have had to drive through the night on Tuesday, right, from, to, to reach um, Amarillo, Texas, where this hearing is taking place from Austin, which is eight hours away. So, I mean, I know because I'm seeing their posts that there are journalists camped out on the steps of that courthouse who have been there since the crack of dawn. Apparently, they're, they're choosing to let in 19 journalists. Um, but that's only after Judge Matthew Kaczmarek went to um, pretty unusual measures to try to prevent the public from, from knowing what was going to be going on in this hearing today, which obviously obviously is of enormous public interest um, to people across the country. Uh, meanwhile, Amy, also in Texas, five women are suing after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancies posed serious risks to their health and uh, were non-viable. You, you wrote a piece in The Nation recently. Uh, she had a heartbeat, too, waiting for one dead woman. Tell us about the near-death experience of Amanda Zorowski. Yeah. Juan, I was actually listening to Democracy Now! on Friday and listening to the clip of Amanda Zorowski that you played, where she talks about how she was losing her pregnancy, um, losing a very wanted pregnancy. Her water broke at about 18 weeks. The doctors in Texas told her, we're so sorry, your pregnancy is not going to survive, but we cannot terminate it because the fetus still has a heartbeat and we are terrified of going to jail or facing civil penalties under Texas abortion law. And so she waited for days and she needed to wait until either the fetus died or she became so close to the brink of death 
that doctors would feel justified in saving her. And when I was listening to her story, Amy and Juan, I had this feeling, this sad and angry feeling that I felt so many times before, because I know this story. I, before Roe v. Wade even fell, I wrote about how women in Catholic hospitals had been subjected to a same days-long wait until they got so close to the brink of death that doctors felt that they could intervene and terminate the pregnancy, um, despite the Catholic ethical and religious directives um, that guide health care um, in one in six acute care beds nationwide in these Catholic hospitals. Um, these stories, now that Roe v. Wade is gone, we are hearing these stories emerging with with just crushing regularity. Um, and I started to think about how with enough almost dead women, because that's the threshold, you can only get an abortion if you are almost dead, um, we are eventually going to have someone who dies. And I wrote this article for two reasons. One is that I wanted to really debunk the idea that these life and health exceptions and abortion bans mean anything. Um, because what we see in Amanda Zorowski's case and the other women in this Texas lawsuit is that when you impose prison sentences and civil penalties on doctors, they are not going to intervene until the most extreme situations possible. Um, when you close the abortion clinics in a state, you get rid of the infrastructure for people to even contemplate um, an abortion. And then the second reason is that I wanted to issue a warning that, you know, in Ireland, um, Savita Halapanavar died in 2012 in a situation very similar to Amanda Zorowski's, um, because when people get sick while miscarrying, it can, they can decline very fast. And I am afraid that we are going to see someone die in this country. And I hope when that happens, that her death means something the way it did in Ireland, where Savita's death led to a transformation of Ireland's abortion laws. Amy Littlefield, we want to thank you so much for being with us. There's so much more to talk about, but we will do this, of course, in the days to come as well. Amy Littlefield is abortion access correspondent at The Nation, former Democracy Now! producer. We'll link to your piece just out. She had a heartbeat, too, waiting for one dead woman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As news of Americans kidnapped in Mexico, and two of them killed, is making headlines, we look at a story that's received less attention, the tens of thousands of Mexicans who remain missing in Mexico. Last week, four Americans who traveled to Matamoros, Mexico, for plastic surgery were caught in a shootout between drug cartels, with two killed, two others held captive for days before they were rescued. One was shot repeatedly. Three women from a Texas border town have been missing since February after traveling traveling to a flea market in Matamoros. Uh, Meanwhile, tens, tens of thousands of Mexicans remain missing in cases that have gone unsolved, some of them for decades. This includes the 2014 case we have followed closely for years of the 43 young men from Ayotzinapa Teachers College who were attacked and forcibly disappeared. We go now to Kate Doyle. She is senior analyst at the National Security Archives, who has new details about what happened that are drawn from the Ayotzinapa records in the four million emails and records stolen from the Mexican Defense Ministry by an anonymous collective of hackers known as Guacamaya. They just released a new report, and she 
also co-produced the After Ayotzinapa podcast with Reveal as part of the NSA's ongoing work on this case. Um, thanks so much for rejoining us, Kate. Um, you're joining us, actually, from Guatemala City. Can you talk about what you found and talk about this in the context of when Americans pay attention and when they don't? Sure, Amy. Thanks, and good morning to both you and Juan. Uh, the Guacamaya Leaks document set from the Mexican military has records, as far as we've seen so far, we've really just only begun to look at them, that go back as early as 2006 to show the level of hostility towards and surveillance of the Ayotzinapa school, where the 43 students who were disappeared in 2014 attended. Um, in the context of, of the, the case of the, the Americans who were killed and, and the others who were missing, and, and the over 100,000 Mexicans who were missing and disappeared, as you mentioned at the top, the, 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 the Ayotzinapa case is a kind of paradigmatic example, if you will, uh, of, of or, or it stands in, if you will, for, for all of the thousands of missing Mexicans, in that it shows the um, tremendous impunity that still dominates these cases of disappeared, which are not solved. The people are not found and nobody is punished. So the Guacamaya Leaks documents really confirm um, uh, suspicions that people had about mili the military, the Mexican military's efforts to both cover up what happened, shield itself from any kind of public scrutiny about its own role in Iguala the night the boys were disappeared, the town in Guerrero where they where they went missing, and uh, and to conduct surveillance and spy on the school, the students, their parents, and the human rights organizations that represent them legally, going back you know almost a decade. And I can talk about specific documents, but overall, that's the kind of things that we're finding. Yeah, Kate, could you talk specifically in terms of uh, how they were sought to discredit the parents and the lawyers and even the U.N. commission uh, uh, after the, di the disappearances? Sure, Juan. I mean, when you look back at 2006, this intelligence report that we found that shows the the, the intensity of the scrutiny that the military was, was doing on the school itself, the spying. Clearly, the school was infiltrated. And they used a kind of language of counterinsurgency to describe the students and the school, calling it a breeding ground for subversion. Then you look at more recent documents. One, for example, in an, another intelligence report from as recent as 2020, that, 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 that discusses um, criminal activities in Iguala, this same town, and, and compares them and conflates them, really, with the social movements that have been started by the parents and the organizations that support them. Um, in, in this particular document I'm thinking of, you see kind of parallel strategies in the way the military talks about organized criminal leaders and, and leaders in the parents' movement to demand uh, uh, answers for the disappearance of their own sons, who, who were taken away by police officials in police uniforms in the backs of police trucks and never seen again. So it's, it's kind of an extraordinary um, example of the sort of elision between the way the military views criminals as a kind of conflictive element in Mexico and the way 
the military views social activists and leaders and, and parents of missing boys. Um, and it's, it's a really disturbing tell on how the defense ministry considers uh, these parents. I want to play a clip of Mexico's former defense secretary, Salvador Sinfuegos Zepeda. In a 2015 interview, he responded to accusations the Mexican military was involved in the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa. I can't permit my soldiers to be treated like criminals or to be interrogated so that they are later made to feel that they had something to do with the night of Iguala instead of being supported. Kate Doyle, can you respond? Sure. That's so of a piece with how the military has tried to shield itself really from the beginning of this case, from any kind of investigative body, any kind of scrutiny. Cienfuegos, then defense minister, uh, yes, refused to allow investigators to interview anybody um, in his uh, in the defense institution, including the soldiers who make up what's known as the 27th Military Infantry Battalion, which is which has its base in Iguala. And the same soldiers were moving around Iguala the entire night while these students were being shot at with machine guns while these students were being beaten. Some of them were wounded, some of them were killed, and then 43 of them were taken away in the backs of the trucks. Soldiers never intervened to stop that. And Salvador Cienfuegos, the defense minister, never permitted the investigators to interview them. There were other ways in which, Amy, the, the, the military sought to shield itself. For example, one of the documents that is in this collection that we posted from Guacamaya uh, shows that when the parents and their lawyers suggested that they should be able to enter the, the base, the 27th Battalion's base in Iguala, to see if there's any evidence there, to possibly conduct excavations or exhumations to see if they could find remains, there are internal memos to the same defense secretary, Cienfuegos, uh, recommending that any detention cells that may be on the base be dismantled and removed and that soldiers or the commander of the base explicitly refuse uh, to allow the investigators to excavate or dig up the ground of the base. Well, we want to thank you, Kate Doyle, for being with us, a senior analyst at the National Security Archive. We're going to link to your report at democracynow.org. Kate was speaking to us, actually, from Guatemala City in Guatemala. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burkdine, Augusta Messiah, Rosner, Sheikh Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Jarena Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Massoud, Sanjeet Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. Make sure to tune in to our segments through the week leading up to the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.